You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm JR. And finally, we've almost got to the end of our... <laughs> I just realised this afternoon, we're still going to have to go on and do the Doctor that we're doing the wardrobe, aren't oh, we? Oh, good. Oh, okay. Well, well, I, you know, it's more it's more fun watching the ones which aren't I part didn't of it, think yeah. much of the first yeah. time. To see whether and, they've yeah, improved. Yeah. yeah, okay. I was going to save it for Christmas. If you want to do it earlier, we can do it earlier if you want. I don't suppose it really matters. You're giving me the decision. Yes, I'm asking you to decide. Wait until Christmas. Okay, we'll do it at Christmas. (laughs) Sometime around Christmas, we'll finally finish. With the backlog of episodes, it probably will be around Christmas by the time we do it. Yeah, we're recording this two days after we recorded our solo review, so this is due to go out God knows how long after it. But it's not time relevant, is it? So... Mm. So we're going to be talking about the wedding of River Song because we've finally got to the end of series six, uh, about four weeks after I promised we would. Um, so I guess I'll do what I always do and go around the table. Simon, mm-hmm. what did you think of it when you first saw it and how recently have you rewatched it, if at all? Uh, when I first saw it, I thought it was audacious and I thought it was mad, utterly crazy. But I kind of liked it, even though it didn't kind of make sense in my head in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. So yeah, yeah. So it was a bit of an oddity, really. But I, I liked it because of that. As to whether it resolved the series properly, I'm not sure if it did. <clears throat> and then well, I watched, we'll get around and to then that. I, and then I watched it this afternoon. Okay. So you've not really seen it since broadcast? Not properly, no. Okay, Matt. Um, I watched it on transmission, and I thought, yeah, I thought it was mad and sort of jarring, and slightly confused but I thought it held together um but I didn't I didn't like it I didn't feel like it sort of brought a climax to the series for me um and then I I next saw it just now okay and I've seen it about five times altogether and I absolutely adored it when it was first on because it was because I've said it before, I, I find Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who a bit like jazz in that it moves to slightly different rhythms and, you know, puts its melodies together slightly differently from normal telly. And this was the absolute epitome of that. So I absolutely loved it. Uh, and the last time I saw it before now was probably round about 2013 when I did that great big Moffat rewatch. Mm. So <clears throat> what do we think now? Go on, I'll keep going in the same direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simon. Um, I wasn't as taken aback by it. It made a lot more sense. There were elements that, uh, as I've said before with Moffat, where you do feel like everything, everything's being thrown at the board. And, and when you do rewatch these things, you realise they make far more sense and have far more relation with each other than you think they do. It always feels that there's loads of disparate elements 
that don't make any sense, but actually they make a heck of a lot of sense. And it's just not as confusing. So, yeah, it, it worked far better for me this time. But I still, I don't know whether it's because we've been watching this fairly slowly as yeah. a series. We haven't been watching it weekly. And no. I think maybe that momentum would have helped. Mm. Because, like Matt said, it didn't feel like a climax to a series. Because I started thinking when I was watching it, is this going to be a two-parter or not? Can they do this in 15 minutes? Yeah. yeah, 45 minutes. Yeah, actually, it was one of the shorter episodes of the series. It was really quick, yeah. Uh, so I found different things to like. I didn't dislike anything, apart from the fact that it felt a little flat, which sounds weird when you consider what an episode it is. Yeah, no, we'll get into that. Yeah, I th- and I think that's possibly down to production, as opposed to the story or the script itself. Matt, then. I liked it more than when I saw it on transmission. Um, but part of that is because, oddly a bit like the episode itself, I can we can now see the Moffat era in total, so it kind of collapses in itself. So you see Churchill, and you see, well, actually you see Dickens as well, coming back, even though that's not Moffat. It's almost like, in the episode, time... Where time it sits in Doctor in Who... And and Doctor Who has collapsed in on itself as well. So you can also see trends. We've seen trends along now. Mm. Um, so it's it's interesting that it folds together. It doesn't fall the the pieces. You know, this mm. says about history all happening at once. It doesn't fall together. It no. folds together. Yeah, yeah. So you get layers as opposed to and that's what and chaos. That's, and that's what Doctor Who up to now. Now we're not watching Moffat Doctor Who sequentially. Now we're watching Moffat Doctor Who in this kind of in this kind of pick-and-mix way, mm. although we've watched it in a, in a sequence, but we, we can watch Russell T. Davis here and a Stephen Moffat there. That's exactly the experience of watching Doctor Who is now, mm. and the same experience of watching classic Doctor Who. Mm. And that's what it's kind of all about. It's about the series itself and our experience of watching again, the yeah. series and how the series survives, even though you think it's dying every, every <laughs> five years. Um, so, yeah, I liked it a lot more. And I loved the the Lethbridge Stewart bit. Oh, I remember yeah. that. I mean, I remember that from the original yeah. transmission. And I'd forgotten it was in this episode. Mm-hmm. That was breathtaking. And the that first was time. and yeah. that was the inspiration. That was the the kickoff that I built my Seasons of War story on. That's why I. Oh I, yes, of course. I brought my. I mm. set my Seasons of War story. In and you couldn't remember which episode. I know, I know. I could just, I could just remember. But that, but that kind of makes sense because this episode is, is this kind of grab bag of moments mm. and images that you're almost. I mean, it does hold together, but you're almost the fact that I can't remember. It could almost be sort of exploded through the series itself. It's a bit like Clara going back through the Doctor's mm. adventures. If the moments in this, in this individual episode were spread over the whole series, it would still sort of. It would still make sense, I think. And I enjoyed it rather less. Okay. But I, I wonder if part of that is because I had to get home from work and shove it on because I only had an hour this afternoon to myself to watch it and I was tired from work and it was the first day back at work. And I wonder if that partly affected it mm. the way I was watching it because ordinarily, I've watched it four times before or however many times it is. And always really got into it. Did you? Did into you? The groove of, of it. Did you watch them in as a sequence? Like, oh, now it's time to watch this. Or did you think, I'm really in the mood for watching 
The yeah, last time I, yeah, no, the last time I watched it, I watched um, Impossible Astronaut, Day of the Moon, Good Man Goes to War, Let's Kill Hitler, mm. and Wedding of River Song, all in an afternoon in a row. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That really worked. Mm. I really enjoyed that experience. Mm. But this, this was one of your favourites yes. for a long time. And I since, think it still is, to be since, honest. But, I since, think, but since this has been on, now you've got Listen is one of your favourites. Yeah, but this was never in the sort of top five. But even when it was... But this was one that right, I just okay. really enjoyed. I was, I was thinking that on the way over here. I was thinking about the fact that, wow, you know, when you think what was to come later mm. from Moffat, in comparison, yeah, it's like, I, wow, this is quite... I was watching it this afternoon and I was actually thinking, oh, I really liked this, but actually almost everything that's here, he's done again and better since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was leading up to the I good think, stuff. This was, yeah. I think yeah. for me, this is just a tipping point between nostalgia. It's not quite nostalgia and it's it's long ago, so it's 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 not new and it's not quite nostalgia. Whereas something like The Eleventh Hour is now nostalgia for me. It's passed. It's passed through. It stopped being new Doctor Who, and started being. Oh, I remember where I was when I saw that, and that's lovely. But at some point between eleventh hour and this, it hasn't tipped over into nostalgia yet. Mm. And maybe it'll be a few more seasons before I now think of, think of the the, mm. the end of the River Song sort of cycle. Is it a disappointing ending to the series to series six? Yeah. Is it? I think so. I never thought so. Because mm. I, and I suppose specifically we're maybe talking about the Tesselector aspect. Mm. But I always thought, but I always thought A, well it was going to be something mundane like that. But B, that's not the important part. The important part is that he did change his mind and choose to change time. And he has changed time. That element I think worked better this time. Round. Did you? Yeah. Mm. I liked the Tesselector more, but then but that's because I liked Let's Go Hitler more this time round. No. So, the, the, and I liked the, yeah, the idea of the Tesselector. And I think they'd seeded it through the episode a bit better. I still can't time. hear the name without thinking of the Selector. As in the Scar Band. The oh, Selector. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that cut the conversation dead. I'm sorry. Sound. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. I thought it. Uh, did I think it concluded the series? I think I think it focused. It was. It's another episode that focuses on the Doctor, and it kept on coming back to the the Doctor and revolved around the Doctor. And I think later Moffat conclusions revolve around not individuals, but on the relationship between the Doctor and someone else, mm. or on aspects of the Doctor's. Existence or life. This is about Doctor's relationship with the universe, isn't it? Yeah, and that's. Uh, but that's the same as the Big Bang was. Yeah, yeah. As well. Well, he does that, doesn't he? The Matt Smith ones are all about the Doctor's relationship with the universe, and the Peter Capaldi ones are all about the Doctor's relationship with his companion. I think with Clara, maybe after this, the Matt Smith ones start becoming a bit more about. So mm, well, no, because you've got the name of the Doctor. Which is about Doctor's relationship with the universe because it's about taking him out of it. Yeah. And then basically you've got the time of the Doctor, which is about the Doctor's relationship with the universe because it revolves around the Doctor being rewarded for being the guardian of the universe, as it yeah. were. 
because there's that great line at the end where she says, doesn't matter what his name is, everybody knows who he is because of what he does, not because of what he's called. Mm. And they call him the Doctor because the Doctor describes what he does right. rather than being what he's called. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I, I do think all the Matt Smith ones, the Matt Smith ones are about the Doctor in the universe and the Peter Capaldi ones are about the Doctor in his companion. I do. And, I, and, I, yeah. and just to Sorry, finish that thought, yeah. I think the Peter Capaldi ones therefore mean more because you can relate to them more easily. Mm. Maybe. Go on. I didn't feel... This time round, the the bit where River Song says, she says about all the millions of people who've been saved, and I didn't want you going without you knowing that everyone. And yeah. I kind of that that didn't sit so well with me. Weirdly, I thought I thought that's a typical Moffat moment. Yeah, but I kind of, as far as the character is concerned, I kind of felt River Song would be a bit more strangely selfish about it. Yeah, and she would yeah. say, "No, I don't want you to go, and I'm prepared to give my life for you." It Which felt, obviously she ends, up, she ends up doing that anyway. But if it had been a little bit more selfish, it might have fitted the character a bit better. Yeah, it wouldn't have gone down so well with the fans because they all look for, you know, a lot of them look for reasons to dislike River Song. But I actually feel that much like I love Amy's character because she isn't, because she's self centered, because she has a proper journey throughout her time on the show, that River Song could have done the same thing, you know, that she was, she is quite. Well, for obvious reasons, she is a self-centered character, yeah. self-important to the point where she wants the Doctor to herself. Maybe I don't know. Well, she does, and she goes back to that. Hence the whole wedding stuff, mm. which mm. I suppose we'll get around to. Um, yeah, that was that was almost like Moffat threw that line in because that's how because because Moffat does that in his finales. He throws in a line mm. that sort of represents what fans think of the programme as much as what the universe thinks of the Doctor. Mm. And it's kind of got that double meaning, hasn't it? But if, yeah, it felt like it was coming out of the mouth of the wrong character. But it had kind of the same dynamic. But there was nobody else who could come out. No, from, no. Know. But it had kind of had that same dynamic as, um, oh God, what was the end of the last series? The previous The Big, the Big Bang. Bang. The Big Bang, yeah. Or the bit where um, he's up on the on the rock with all the spaceships flying around him and he's talking about all these different things. And it's kind of the same thing where She's kind of pointing to the sky and saying, "Oh, these are millions of people who want to help you and all this sort of thing," and it doesn't quite. Well, previously it was always millions of people who want to stick you in a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he does that as well, doesn't he? He'll engineer a similar situation and mm. reverse it in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it did. Uh, it it did, sort of when you pull it apart, feel like he's engineering lots of similar things, but. By itself, just watching it, it feels completely different. Mm. I thought, mm. Scott, because while I've said this thing about Stephen Moffat's like jazz, a lot of his episodes are like slower movements, and this was like a much faster movement. Mm. But actually, it's watching it this afternoon, it felt like a faster movement, but with less instrumentation, mm. which is perhaps a byproduct of it being a faster movement. It's interesting, this stuff, at this level, you see the cogs whirring, and that's the bit where you go, oh, that's clever, because you can see all the way all the cogs fit together. Later on, it becomes far more poetic, mm. and all you see is the bodywork, and you think, how the bloody hell did he do that? I think almost I preferred it not to have been... So the the big idea of this, which is time has collapsed in on itself, the big conceptual idea of this is time has collapsed in on itself, 
And you get yeah. that for two minutes. And you have Churchill as the new Roman emperor. Yeah. And you have all of these vignettes. But they kind of... That's just the sort of superficial setting yeah, of the yeah. story. But it's all about something else. And I quite like the superficial setting. I wanted to see more of this You wanted an episode well. set there. I wanted to see two episodes set there in the middle of the series. As well, a kind yeah, of yeah. like Rise of the Cybermen style. The, the sequence with Mark Gatiss. I was thinking, well, we've just seen this in Solo. Right. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. similar kind of. Mm. And I thought Gates yeah, was yeah. this time around as well. He's a king, yeah. 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 He, wasn't asked, he wasn't asked to do a great deal. That That is one of those typical Moffat ideas, live chess with an audience. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that's one of those things he just throws in there and... That's one of the things but, people say about him. You could have extrapolated an episode out of that, but, but I don't maybe mind, it wouldn't have worked. I don't mind the episode not being extrapolated out of the yeah. live chess yeah, with the yeah. in, but Churchill as Roman yeah. London, London, where time has collapsed in on itself. I mean, you'd have to spend a lot of time. I always remember, it. though, with that bit, you know, that bit of the American reporter saying mm. that President Churchill... Emperor Churchill was yes. on his personal mammoth and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, right. That was that line that leaked, wasn't it? Months well, before. I it. did it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. It's a good job Lee's not here. He hated that. He said, yeah. "If times all happening at once, then everybody should be standing absolutely still and nothing should be moving because the clocks aren't moving." Lee. For somebody who works in a library, has got precisely zero poetry in his soul. <laughs> but nevertheless. Mm. Right, okay. Um, what was the thing we almost just mentioned and didn't? We said we'd come back to, let's do it now. The wedding. Mm. There's a line, I mean, it takes place in an alternative reality. Mm. There's a line at the end. There's a really nice exchange between um, Amy and River where. Amy says, I killed somebody. And River says, it happened in an alternative reality. It's not real. Mm. And Amy says, you know, I still performed the action. It's still real to me. And that says everything about those. Or particularly, that says everything about River Song. Because yeah. River Song doesn't consider, therefore, the wedding to be real. Because it took place in an alternative reality as much as she wants it to. Whereas Amy, as much as she doesn't want the fact that she she didn't actually kill somebody, but as near as damn it, she doesn't want that to be real. And even though she's got the perfect excuse, she knows that she did that. Except and she can't escape from it. Except the wedding takes place and it involves the the doc so Amy killing Madame Kabarian is just Amy and Madame Kabarian, both of whom are part of this collapsed time thing. Because the, the wedding involves well, we're talking the doc- about perspective. Because the wedding involves the doctor, who's at the center, who's at the kind of the uh, the eye of this this hurricane. That's still his reality. So the doctor's still. But we're talking about perspective to to River Song. Yes, but but it only counts if they both believe it. Right. Yeah. And what I'm saying is, River Song shows in that scene. Yes. Mm. She doesn't say it in that scene, but what she says to Amy in that scene. Right. Shows her inner thoughts. She doesn't believe it. Right. So it doesn't okay. count for her. Okay. So whatever way you extrapolate the 
legalities of it, for want of a better word, the logistics of it. If it she, doesn't count for her, I thought she'd already always considered herself married to the doctor. Well, because they've talked. Yes, to, but this goes back to what I've to been saying forever: in right. that she says these things to him because she wants them to come true, not right. because they are true. Okay. I mean, I must have said this. You must have heard me Possibly, say this. I probably didn't. Didn't River Song is an unrequited. River Song, her relationship with the Doctor is unrequited. Okay. It's all about the whole thing. Yeah, I heard. I think I heard you yeah. say, say it before. I just didn't agree with you. And, well, yeah, but even at the end of this episode, <laughs> in this very episode, yeah, the Eleventh Doctor. I can't remember exactly what he says. There is a line in this episode where he makes it absolutely patently clear that he has no idea what sexual intercourse with River Song is like. Right. He's never done it. And then she goes on pretty much within the same scene. Or no, he goes on and makes a joke pretty much within the same scene. What she does in the daytime, she's in a prison. What she does at the nighttime is between me and her. Right. And it's just like, what we're watching... We were talking about Solo last week, about the robot. Yes. Who believes this stuff because she doesn't know what it means. Yeah, but... The That's side, the Doctor. But the robot definitely has had sex with Lando Calrissian. No. <laughs> and and there, there, there's, a difference, but there's a difference between two characters having sex and being married. So they couldn't... I think they still, no, are, they still are effectively husband and wife. They just... Well, whether the Doctor's had sex with her is kind of a separate issue. Well, one that I'm not going to think too hard on. Well, but it's but, one. It's a marriage that isn't legally binding because it takes place in an alternative universe. So it's only a marriage that's bound by the consummation of it between the two people who are involved. Right. And if one of them doesn't know what the consummation of it is, yeah. Then the other one, River Song, has, it goes back to that default position where she tries to persuade him by telling him things are true. Mm. that are the things she wants to be true rather than because they are. I guess the consummation of the marriage as it is is the Doctor's commitment to be in her life from that point onwards, which is why I have the line where he talks about, yes, she's in prison during the days, but mm. during the nights, that's what he's saying is basically we have fun together or we, Whatever, we go yeah. out together. So actually, that effectively, that's what their marriage is. The, 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 the Doctor doesn't spend his entire life with her, but all of her nights are spent on well, some yeah. on some adventure, we assume, with the Doctor. And tell me if I'm wrong, but at some stage he does tell her his name. Because that comes up inside the library. Because it, un- it unlocks the, 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 the dead TARDIS, doesn't it? In name of the Doctor. Oh, okay. So that's the password to unlock the, 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 the TARDIS. Which and is she knows it. Two years later, yeah. Mm. I'm, what I'm saying is, there is an instance in time where he tells her. Yeah, but I, do, I just think we're aware is when they get married. I just which think happens that, off screen because it doesn't happen here. No, I, ju- I just think the marriage. I think the marriage between the Doctor and River Song, even though it happened in an alternate collapsed universe, I think it did happen. But the the the, well, the fact of that marriage well, or we, the we nature that, of that marriage is more complicated because it's the doc- the Doctor and River Song. Yeah. I don't think that was the real marriage because you know he whispers. Yeah, eyes, it something else. Yeah. So it could have happened during the Capaldi time. During the well, she only meets the Capaldi Doctor once, doesn't she? Because she doesn't recognise him when she meets him, and then she goes off to her death afterwards. But do we know if if telling, saying your name is part of the 
part of the ritual well, of is, the marriage this, or it just says there's a, only one time he would, have, yeah. he would have told someone his name so that could either mean it's part of the ritual of marriage or it's just a custom part of the marriage couldn't it yeah sorry what <laughs> could be part of that is that one moment um, but going back to what I was saying it's all about psychologically does she believe it and I think that line at the end is supposed to represent the fact that she doesn't I think it's a bit rough I think the relationship between Rory and River is a bit rough now so we found out that obviously Amy is River's mother and that's changed the dynamic between them but, Rory but it should still equally the... change yeah, the dynamic yeah. between Rory and River but it doesn't seem to so Rory yeah, is still but... sort of separate if you but we've all we are all in or have been in relationships, mm. and sometimes the bloke in the relationship's relationship with his, and and let's face it, even though River Song's their daughter, in terms of how the relationship works, mm. she's more like the mother, mm. and therefore his mother-in-law, right? And you know it's a sci-fi relationship, yes. so you can't. Well. You can't really look at it in terms of how the relationship would work in reality. No. But he, but there are relationships where the guy around the kid or around the wife's parents or whatever is a bit of a fifth wheel, mm. and it just uh, it just that's... stood out to me in that last moment that the, think... the sensitive moment was between Amy and yeah. River between the because and yeah. also the other thing about having kids is you know he's a mummy's boy, she's a daddy's girl, she's a daddy's. Yeah, she's a mummy's girl. Whatever mm. the the kids, they don't, they they sort of they'll always favour a parent. Mm. Regard they'll love both parents the same amount, but there'll be one that they favour in terms of things like their their, their emotional connection. That there'll be another one that they favour in terms of mm. which parent do you go to the library and read books with. Mm. Which parent tells you a bedtime story? All these kind of things. And that scene in the garden at the end struck me as more an example of Stephen Moffat bringing his own life into Doctor Who by just giving a tiny little vignette of an actual family. I think I just think it struck me as as the fact that Amy's still seen as the kind of the alpha companion who's been oh, yeah. the Doctor and it's still about Amy and Rory's still the companion that joined afterwards. But, but, the, but, but the problem for me is, ever since Rory's joined, I've actually grown to really like Rory. And I'd be really interested to see a small scene between River and Rory where they, they actually tackle this idea of him being her father. And I, I think, think it's a missed writes, opportunity. Well, he writes Rory as himself. I think he writes Rory as a kind of an adjunct of Amy a lot mm, of the time. No, he writes Rory as him. Rory oh, is as... Well, well, Rory is how Stephen Moffat sees himself. Yeah. The perennially useless guy who somehow but, has managed to bag a beautiful woman. Yeah, Has yeah. somehow managed to bag a beautiful family. Has somehow managed to bag an amazing job, but still considers himself useless in all those in all those areas. And so, therefore, Rory is a bit useless at his job. I mean, he's really good at it. Yeah. He does a really good yeah. job, but he's a bit useless... Not because he's useless, but because he sees himself I, as useless. And the same goes with him and Amy, and the same goes with him and River. But the, I, effect, the effect of that, and I can see where that comes from, but the effect of that is it turns the character into an adjunct of, well, yeah. of Amy, which isn't satisfying to me, because well, I, like the, I like the character. I think the character has... There's that lovely little scene, isn't there, where River 
bumps into Rory for her for the first time, doesn't she? Mm. And she calls him Rory. Yeah. I mean, it's very short, but yeah. that kind of really, I think that's that kind of nails it. Yeah. In yeah. a really subtle way Absolutely. as to how she sees it. But, yeah. um, but it just stood out in this episode. Mm. And let's face it, Amy is the alpha companion, so Rory is, if Moffat's writing Rory as himself, Mm. as somebody who's a beta companion, then that's satisfying in a beta companion way. You're not supposed to, as an audience member, you're not supposed to get the satisfaction from Rory that you get from Amy. I mean, I think think Rory is better served in episodes following this, and he becomes less of an adjunct and... Less of a beta companion. The Chibnall ones. Uh, well, the Chibnall ones, but also by the the final, his final, his final, final story, the Angels one. He's still mm, a little bit. That's a bit here and there because there are. It's still about Amy. It's still about Amy's the, choice at the end. But the conclusion is Amy and Rory together. Mm. So they have. You know, yes, but, but he's not on screen when that conclusion happens. Mm. He's still an adjunct because yeah. he's already yeah. gone. She makes that decision entirely by herself. Mm. So, you know, he's not there either for that. Mm. Time. I've said this in the magazine. I don't know whether I've said this on the podcast. In Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, to me, is like if you change the way time works, if you change a timeline, what it is like is like putting a piece of paper on top of the original piece of paper so that the piece of paper underneath is completely hidden and you can't see it, but that doesn't stop it existing. Palimpsest. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Right, that's how, for me, it works. Because obviously time travel is one of those things. Everybody who writes it writes it slightly differently. But as far as I can see, and we've seen this in things like Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, Mm -hmm. where there's a reset at the end but the characters who've been reset still learn from it. And the reason they still learn from it is... The way I described it was like, if you've got point A and point B, and there's a piece of string from point A to point B, and then you change what happens at point A, Mm. then that piece of string goes back and carries on to a new destination. Mm. So now you've got essentially three lengths of string, although one of them's not important, because that's the... But that means the original length of string still happened. Mm. It's just been superseded by the new length of string. Right. Or like the new piece of paper has superseded what happened on the old one, but the old one is still there. But, which is by way of saying, I think what has happened, and I was that was the thing I was most looking forward, most looking out for in this episode, was to see if there's at any point where it's either confirmed or denied. But I still go back to the idea... At the start of The Impossible Astronaut, the Doctor is killed dead. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end of the series, what they do is they go back and change that. So they don't... So that doesn't mean that what we saw in the first place was the new version, but we were just disguised of it. What it means is when we first saw it, it was unchanged. And by the end of the series, we see it changed. In fact, changed twice because we get the version where she doesn't kill him at all. Mm. And then we get the version where he's replaced by the Tesselector and she kills him. Because you see the regenerative energy in the first place, don't you? And then, but you don't the second time, I think. Cause I think yeah, I love... No, they show it from a different angle, so I don't think you'd see it either way. But you don't. No. No, I'm pretty sure. We all know that, in theory, it shouldn't have been... Anyway, yeah. In my head. 
Do you, Matt, agree or I disagree? Mean, uh, or do you I just don't think it's important? Well, I don't. I don't entirely <laughs> entirely think whether because in terms of us watching watching that first scene, it's a bit of a Schrodinger's thing. But it's it's both, I guess. Well, it doesn't matter which in is, sense it doesn't. We know it's not yeah. going to be. Yeah, we know it's yeah. not going to stand by the end of the series. Yeah. Yeah. and the series is about how it doesn't stand. But I mean, I just, I'd, I'd say, I'd say, given given the nature of the the program, watching that first episode, of course he didn't die, even though he he might have died philosophically. But of course he didn't die because the doctor doesn't die because the doctor is the program and the program is the doctor. So, in a sense, the Doctor never dies when you see him die. <laughs> so, that's what that opens up in my head for me. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, well, we M- knew. Much like the Master. The Master never dies. Did it feel then... Because then this... And, of course, just to sort of go back to what I was saying, the strapline of the series and of that sort of whole Matt Smith era is time can be rewritten. Mm. Which which Im- implies really heavily that you change time, rather than just it being what we think we've seen. Yeah. So I think, but then therefore the story of the series is um, how he gets out of it. Is it satisfactory? His escape route. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean I think it's watertight as to whether it's got the dramatic impact that it had first time uh, I don't know for, for me I was never I mean that was a big does he get the question does he get out of this was never a question for no, it's obviously question. Yeah. how he gets out of it was never a big a big question for me because I knew he was going to get out of it I knew that there was probably a range of possibilities that would happen so when I was watching it and when I was watching it in this rewatch that wasn't that wasn't the main source of interest through the series. So but, actually, the conclusion as it was, I was fine with because yeah. I hadn't built it up in my head. But I'm not talking about you. I'm talking right. about in general because that was the question that the series asked: How will he get out of this? And that was the thing that people tuned in to find out how he got out of it. And I think it was satisfying in the sense that the series seemed to build up a number of possible possible solutions to the problem. Um, and the Tesselector was one of them, and was actually in a probably episode. The, the yeah the most buried one though as well because it wasn't a two parter, um, and so the Rebel Flesh idea came back in multiple episodes. So it was that two parter and the episode uh, after and yeah. the episode after. So that was almost the bigger possibility. So this was all. This was kind of yeah, a double yeah. bluff. But the thing so is, the fact that the rebel flesh thing did come back in the episode afterwards, kind of, if the rebel flesh was there to set something up that would pay off, mm. then the payoff is when the baby turns into milk in the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the point at which you say, okay, so the resolution to the series isn't going to be that. It's going to be well, something that's, else. That's I when guess. you hope it's not going to be that, because then if they had used the rebel flesh as the solution, then you'd think. Well, well, they're over-egging. They paid this, it off this twice. Yeah. So actually, the use of the Tesselector is slightly more satisfying. Slightly more less. satisfying. And also, I liked, as I say, I liked the Tesselector more in this rewatch. I liked this idea that the the crew of the Tesselector was sort of, it's almost like um, 
The seventh the, Hollow is the a final, the final Capaldi, Capaldi story, where where the villain was sort of a collector of yeah. basically last memories. It's a nice idea, and it's a it's an untraditional Doctor Who idea because the villain isn't world dominating. Um, so this idea of this kind of time traveling police force, mm. that's that's quite a that's quite an interesting one. I quite like that. Did I mean, they... it's, in a sense, Rebel Flesh is a bit like that. So it's again an interesting it's terrible. Idea. Well, yeah, yeah. So no, I quite, I'm, I'm. We didn't get to see the Tesselector effect again. No, that was a bit of a shame. But but that sort of I think all of the effects or a number of the effects in this episode didn't work. Oh, the skulls. The skulls didn't work. Yeah, where it went slow motion. And actually, I didn't find that the train going through the desert worked for me. I thought the very first one with the train, when it was in Mm. the city, was a nice shot. Yeah, bits of that Mm. worked, but it was variable effects, I think. There weren't actually as many effects as perhaps you got the impression the first time, I think. Mm. It was... I tell you what, uh, the one thing that struck me this afternoon was that the entire episode is all people standing in rooms talking to each other. Mm. There's there's one bit where three silence burst into a room and get mowed down by a machine gun. Yeah. That's about the only physical thing that happens in the episode. And actually, and actually that, feels, that feels wrong. So compare that with um, Russell, one of the Russell T. Davis drivers, like Sound of Drums where it's the Doctor and Martha and they're outside and they're running through London. It feels like a much bigger scale. This actually feels like a really big concept, but told on a really small scale. Which is what Martha does, of course. Yeah. And it's also a money-saving exercise because he had a lot less money than Rossity Davis. Yeah, but I'd have liked... But, yeah, I think that's why... That's the thing that made me feel underwhelmed. As a finale, it needed more action. Yeah. Mm. And with, Not which is spectacle, but action. Which more. is odd because I, I I seem to remember the criticism of this. So when I first watched it, my my discontent with it was it was a bit too full on, and there was too much going on, and there was too much scale. But actually, I think it's the opposite. I think, yeah, yeah. I think I wanted to see more of that scale, mm. and actually, what I saw was sort of edges of that, or or sort of snatches of that. Basically, just lots of people standing in rooms talking yeah, to each other. Or a garden, or yeah, which I don't mind. And I think actually, if you're going to do people standing in rooms talking to each other, maybe the finale is the place to do it because the finale is um, in the, under Stephen Moffat. The finale is more of an intellectual adventure than a physical one. Mm. Whereas if you stuck. So, you see, the standalone episodes in the middle of the series, they kind of have to do the adventure of the week thing. Mm. So, they kind of necessity, they kind of have to do a little bit Indiana Jones, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Otherwise, they don't keep your interest up. Whereas in the finale, I think you can throw ideas at the audience and the audience has to balance the ideas. But... I think I think a combination of the two. Yeah, so I think yeah, the yeah. Pandora opens and the Big Bang. Has got balance each other out quite yes. nicely as a two part story, and having sent Hell Bent balance each other out quite nicely as a two part story. And I and I think therefore this one is perhaps. See, I would say up until this afternoon, I would have said yes, that's fine. I don't mind that this time because that's a one off, right? And because it's the right place to do it. But watching it this afternoon, I thought, yeah, but it 
probably could have done with something. Yeah. Because, I mean, the nearest thing you get to action is Doctor and River Song bloody held in hands on a rooftop. And cut, and because and closing, did you yeah, want, the silence attack. Were you on the close? Were you on closing time? Oops, podcast. Or yes, was it I was. Just, yeah. So there was something. There's something slight about closing time, and something that's very pleasing, but something very domestic and slight, and comedic, but kind of non moffity And I think closing time is where we would have normally have had the first part of a two part. Mm. Conclusion, yeah. mm. and I think that was missing slightly. Yes, it, that if there's anything wrong with this, it's the fact that it is just one episode rather than two. Mm. And uh, if it had been two episodes, you could have spread. See, I'm not. I'm going to come at this from a different angle to you. I think if you'd have had two episodes, you could have spread all those intellectual ideas mm. and all those conversations across ninety minutes. And you could have stuck a bit more action in between. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. But I mean, mm. when I talk about balance, I don't necessarily. No, I mean, I mean, from your perspective, you were saying you wanted to see more of that universe. Yes. I'm saying yeah. I wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't necessarily have been that universe I was looking for. Right. Yeah. Is all I'm saying. Mm. Um, should we give this a score? Or is it, I mean, there's lots more things, but the the bit where the silence wake up in the sort of, Tanks mm-hmm. was done better in Dark Water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 reveal of um, I mean the nice thing with the um, eye patches that was great. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like Rory yeah. Rory revealing that his eye patches already started. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and again him. that's something that, that Moffat's nice. done yeah. again since and good. better. Um, the the, Brig- the Brigadier moment was probably yeah. the the biggest highlight. Of the I mean, yeah. it might be because I'm more of an old. An old school fan, and the bit where like the bit where Amy doesn't realise who Rory is is essentially a spin on the previous year when Rory comes back as an Auton and the yes. doctor doesn't realise who he is. But it's also that they also play for, play on that for comedy because yes. a, you assume Amy doesn't recognise the doctor and then it turns out it turns out that she does and it's Rory. She I should recognize. say that the Brigadier moment is is my favourite Brigadier moment apart from the Cyber Brigadier um, during the Capaldi season, which is really good. <laughs> Isn't it Australia? The Cyber Brigadier is brilliant. Hey, Australia. Pander to them, Matt. <laughs> Don't great. blow I love yourself. The cyber. And I loved Solo as well. It was great. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> okay. I can say um, both those things without a tongue in a... Without having your... Tongue where? Tongue oh, cheek. sorry. <laughs> Um, but is there anything else that we really sort of need to bring up? Or because uh, I don't think Madame Kavarian. Do you think her end was a little bit underwhelming? <laughs> no, I thought <laughs> the way that, that's where we need Lee here. Yeah. <laughs> no, Madame I thought the way Kaverian she was. I thought the way Amy. <laughs> yeah, I thought her final yeah. scene was great. Yeah, but she was barely there before it. Exactly. Yeah, so her story had kind of been told. Mm. I still preferred her performance in this. To the sort of cackling arch villain performance. There was a bit in of that the good here, as well. Um, and I liked that she she wasn't there very much, but she did have this sort of quiet. She turned the tables mm. on on the doctor, and that was quite nice. So she had that going for her. Mm. But Again, she, but she's not the most powerfully drawn. She's one of these a bit like um, who's the character in. Uh, the last Matt Smith story. In Tasha Lem in Time of the Doctor. Yeah. 
She's a bit like that, where it's a really fascinating character, but you get the feeling that she's she's got a bigger life outside of the screen that you haven't seen. And if she was she in more, it, yeah. if she was in more episodes, maybe you'd have the pleasure of seeing that bigger life, but you don't. It's interesting the bit where she was begging. <clears throat> I kind of felt that should have been between her and River. Well, that, except, yeah, and then and then Amy could have stepped in and sort of said. But Amy's the lead mother. Me, yeah, lead me to that, it, River. that gave me what I didn't get in Good Man Goes to War, which is finally Amy gets closure. Amy actually her. demonstrating that that she's affected by the loss mm. of her, her child because she actually talks about you know. I'm saying you could have that, but child. I, I didn't quite understand why Madame mm. Caverian was begging to Amy. No. When it was River who she. But she knew, but she knew that it was Amy whose baby she'd taken. Mm. And she'd spent time with Amy. Presumably. Yeah, so, so, so Amy, Amy was in the that well. Amy was in the coffin thing for yeah. several months, and I just I was just trying to think why why Kaverian would go to Amy for forgiveness because all the way through the series, every time we see a hatch open or whatever, it's Kaverian mm. and Amy. Mm, okay, they've had a relationship throughout the whole series, and the river thing is that River went away, as it were, I suppose. Mm. Oh yeah. River yeah. was only there when she was a very small child. Mm. Although obviously, like I said before, there was the the sleeper aspect of uh, programming or whatever. But mm. I don't know. Yeah, no, that felt right. Okay. To me. Um, do you want to score it then? Shall we, Simon? Yeah. Um, it's an eight out of ten. Okay. You want to sort of or is that elaborate? Um, well, I think seven would be too tight on something so imaginative and, um, as I say, audacious and doing something which, surprisingly, Doctor Who's never quite done before, the whole idea of time doing that and all getting jumbled up and and, uh, and just just taking it somewhere it's never been before, which is a big thing for the, for the series. So, But at the same time, I don't feel it quite... Uh, built the story to the scale it could have been like you said it could have been quite um and you know it might have been a money thing but uh i don't know it just, it just didn't feel like it had the scale mm. the, the story had massive scale but it felt do you know quite domestic watching domestic it. does that make sense do you know i thought watching it is the thing that was underwhelming was the director mm-hmm and he's the only other Doctor Who he's ever done was the Curse of the Black Spot, and he's never been back. Yeah, because Curse of the Black Spot felt a bit insular. It, it felt a like there was a small key. space the whole thing was happening in. Yeah, yeah. And yet the story Parochial. was far. F- yeah, is that a word? It's a word. It's a word. It sounds good to me. Sort of local, small scale. Yeah, yeah. I think look at that script and imagine what Rachel Talalay or Ben Thingamajig would have done with it. Yeah, you think about some our Ben thing we think we do from Deep Breath. Oh, Wheatley, Ben Wheatley. Yeah, imagine yeah. what Ben Wheatley yeah. or yeah. Rachel Talley would have done with that script. Uh, a story doesn't want to feel like it's. You don't want to be actively thinking in your head. Oh, this is studio based, and it mm. does feel studio based. Because I tell you what, actually, going back to the director, there were certain beats in that episode where I was having to. There were, there were certain beats where the actors weren't doing what the script was telling them to do. Mm. So some of the one in particular, and I can't remember specific examples of the actual dialogue and stuff, 
But at the end, where River and Amy are having the conversation, there were certain emphases that were supposed to be going on in that scene to explain what the series had been. And the director was emphasising the wrong things. So the sense of the story was getting slightly lost. So I was having to watch the dialogue rather than watch the actors to make sense of the story. Mm. That's something that the director needs to be on top of. I just got the impression with this director, and especially in this episode because it's so much more complicated than The Curse of the Black Spot, that he perhaps didn't have the depth of understanding of the material that you really needed with something that complicated and that jazz, for want of a better word. (laughs) So I think it was... And I'm not saying he's a poor director. I'm just saying he was the wrong director for that job, maybe. Mm. But he certainly seemed to undersell the material mm, in places yeah. where it needed to That's selling. a really good word, undersold. Yeah, the story was undersold. Yeah. It could have been flamboyant. It was lacking... And Moffat's script was famously written in a bit of a hurry because he was so busy that year, mm. he left it late. And it's not as sparkly and as witty as some of his other scripts. Mm. But it's not that lacking in sparkle and wit. No. That I think the directing job made of it. Anyway, Matt, you score. I give it seven um, for all the reasons Simon just said. But yeah. But I think the fact that it was an audacious concept actually reduces the score because if you've got an audacious concept, then then it's a kind of a crime to just sort of. Mm. to not. To not expand on it. Yeah. Because you can't go back. Well, you can go back to that in Doctor Who. And they probably will. Mm. And I, well, previously, I'm not sure whether I would have nined or tended it. Probably nine. This time, it's going to be, I could have gone seven, but I'm going to go eight. Because I'm pretty sure next time I watch it, like you said at the start, we've watched these a bit patchwork and spread out. I think next time I watch it, if I watch it, in closer tandem with the other episodes, it'll fit a lot better and feel a lot sparkier again. Mm. So an eight from me too, I reckon. Um, Don't know what's happening next week, so I'm not even going to bother attempting to try and second guess what's happening next week. But we'll be back um, in December to talk about the Doctor, the Widow and the Wardrobe. Okay. (laughs) Um, Until before then, I was JR. I was Matt. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.
Unless there's any others orders of business. There isn't, is there? No. No. no we've done so We're not going to talk about um, Twitch, are we? Did you see my post on Facebook about Solo? The thing that I forgot two nights ago. I said at the end I was reaching for something, wasn't I? Mm. And then when I got home, the instant I walked in the door, I remembered what it was, the, the box office figures. Okay. Oh, yeah. Mm. And, I was, and I made the post on Facebook, but you haven't seen it. I think I saw it. Okay. I think a lot of people probably won't have, though. I might as well say it as soon as the recorder's still going. Okay. The, well, what I did was I just looked at the box office figures and worked out and tried to work out what the actual expectation for Solo might have been if you were actually being logical and sensible about it rather than just saying it's another Star Wars or expecting a billion or whatever. So what I did was <clears throat> I looked at what the last Jedi <coughs> what the last Jedi got compared with what the Force Awakens got. Mm. Because when the Force Awakens came out, if you remember, all over Facebook and Twitter and everywhere, oh now that's my sixth time in the cinema for the Force Awakens. People were going to the cinema day after day after day just to watch it and rewatch it and rewatch it. Mm. And I would bet that something like two thirds of The Force Awakens money was made by just the same people going back time after time. Mm. When you get to the next film, especially if there's been another film in between, people just aren't going no. that often because they know the Blu ray is just four months away or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, Last Jedi gets, roughly speaking, two-thirds of the domestic box office. I can't remember the exact figures. I did work them out. Mm. Um, last year, I guess, roughly two-thirds, which probably means, actually, more people went to see it because people were seeing it so few <laughs> times. Mm. Then I looked at what um, Rogue One got compared to uh, The Force Awakens. And with Rogue One, again, the social media, because it was the first Star Wars story film and because it was still only the second film in the Disney Star Wars, because it, primarily because nobody knew quite what it would be like because it was the first Star Wars story and people didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Again, people were going to see it time after time mm -hmm. at the cinema. So I said, OK, if you take the same drop-off as Last Jedi had from Force Awakens... And apply that to Solo from uh, Rogue One, then it comes out at three hundred and fifty million dollars domestic. Mm. Plus, then what I didn't do, but I mean, what you could have done was factor in the fact that it was a summer release, mm -hmm. and summer audiences are at that point of the summer are always smaller than Christmas audiences. Yeah. So probably realistically, the expectation for Solo, if it hadn't had the bad word of mouth beforehand would have been about 300 million domestically. Mm. And as we speak, I think it's just shy of 150. Right. And obviously it's not going to... It'll probably end up maybe around 200. Mm. So it's probably done, realistically speaking, about two-thirds of the box office mm. that you would have expected of it, not taking the bad word of mouth because of the controversy into account. So actually, taking the bad word of mouth and the controversy into account, even though at the moment on shy of 150 as compared to um, Force Awakens almost a billion domestically, that looks appalling. Mm. But actually taking all those things into account is actually about where you'd expect it to be if you applied the logic and the, the reason from all those other factors I've just said. Yeah. And this was the thing I just was going to bring up. 
I guess the concern is because I guess well the budget the, is the, well, the Star Wars movies they're going to try and presumably model on the so everybody's modelling the success of movies on Marvel because Marvel are the big the big hitters at the moment and the f- Marvel go increase in viewership in, but, in general they increase yeah. in viewership as they go but, but Star Wars is slightly different because yes. when Iron Man hit yeah it wasn't uh, the legacy of something that was that popular and that ubiquitous. So Disney must have known that that first Star Wars Mm. was going to get way more than any of the others because of the repeat viewings Mm. from people who'd grown up with Star Wars and are now in their 40s with disposable Mm. incomes and who were just going to go and go and go and go again. Yeah. And also the fact that DCU are trying to do Marvel... Mm. But Disney owned Marvel and Disney owned Star Wars. So even if you've got a successful um, sort of project on one side of your counter, if you've got another project and you want that to be successful, yeah, sure, you use the influence of the other one. Mm. You take a bit of inspiration from it. But because you're the same company, you don't just repeat. No. What you do is you try and learn lessons from one side of the fence to apply on the other side of the fence yeah. while doing it differently enough that that you're not just repeating yourself, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, I take the point about the Marvel Universe. Mm. But I think probably what Disney want to do is something that's similar enough but different enough to be distinct. Yeah. So, I don't yeah. Mm. I think... Anyway, I, I thought it was interesting about the box office that it actually turns out that despite the fact that it looks absolutely appalling, mm. if you actually do a bit of maths on it, it's probably about where it should have been. Well, also, I mean, the next step will be the conclusion of the 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 new trilogy. Mm. And because and that's, that's, the last get, that's going to be a tentpole. Should be up assume. on Last Jedi yeah. because it's the last part yeah. of the trilogy. And so what they've got to do now is start thinking about what to do next with the the sort of mm. side Star Wars and yeah, whether yeah. to to carry on with their plans or whether to sort of. Well, yeah. The, see, the last in the trilogy is the one that everybody wants to go to the pictures to see because it's mm. the one that they desperately don't want to be spoiled on, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So automatically that takes it up a notch again. So yeah. yeah. Unless you're Revenge of the Sith. Well, yeah, but everybody knew where that was going, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, and and likewise with Solo. Mm. So uh, people were worried about spoilers for Solo, and we tried to avoid spoilers when we were talking about well, it. Well, we did, Matt, but, but well, you in my, didn't. in my head, I didn't think of them particularly as spoilers. I mean, they're kind of characters coming back. They're kind of exciting. It's interesting. But it's, but it's not like plot twists. It's, it's interesting yeah, it though that we where we said about the hidden character and all that stuff mm. that that suddenly become important. George Lucas was throwing them into the prequels like confetti. Yeah, wasn't yeah. he connecting one? You know, Darth Vader built C three PO. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so there's a different magnitude behind between spoiling how a trilogy of movies that have been shown over six years mm. concludes. Mm. And finding out that a certain character comes back in a in a what might be a standalone movie or might be a sort of start of a trilogy, mm. I think there's different sort of spoilers, and, yeah. and that that nature says something. About Are you trying the to excuse yourself? No, I'm quite. I'm, yeah, I'm, 
I am fascinated to know what they do with episode nine, though. I mean, if, hmm. you know. yeah. Well, I don't think it's going to conclude. You don't? No, I think it'll conclude this. I, the way I understand it is that the trilogy that Ryan Johnson's doing afterwards is not going to be Ray and Finn. And no, Thor. no, it's going off to another. It's going to be an offshoot. Yeah. yeah. So I imagine that the film will finish with a victory of sorts that finishes up Ray and Finn and that's storyline, but leaves the First Order intact. Because mm. I don't see... I mean, you've already had the Empire gets defeated and then the First Order rises out of the Empire. As I understand it... So you it, really want to do that again so soon? I'm not saying they're basing it on that at all, but as I understood it, uh, the, the final trilogy, as far as Lucas was concerned, if he was going to do it, was going to end up with finding balance in the Force. Hmm. So that so the dark and light are both yeah there. yeah the pro- the problem with that is balancing the force isn't a, an exciting kind no. of background to make future films mm. and drama mm. so there's probably a tension between Lucas wanting a nice neat <clears throat> resolution and Disney wanting to make more films well the way yeah the yeah. way the next film potentially could end is on the same note as sort of Day of the Triffid ends which is an extrapolation well, sort of an anti-extrapolation of where The Last Jedi ends. The Last Jedi ends at a point where it looks like all hope is lost. Mm. And they've really got to build up right from scratch. I think the next film ends with them having built something up. So it doesn't end on a victory against the First Order, Kylo Ren. but it ends on a victory Redemption. for the characters. Mm. Yeah, Kylo Ren, obviously, that'll be... I, the, it's Star Wars. It'll end with a big battle. Mm. and a big explosion but the story beat won't be the uh, as I see it the story beat won't be the defeat of the First Order but it'll be some kind of resolution between Kylo Ren and Finn and Rey Mm. and Poe Dameron I guess because those are the main characters and you'll want to write them out in a way that resolves their storyline so and you do need to keep the First Order because you can't just knock it down and Start it again, can you? Mm-hmm. So I, I can't see them doing that. Anyway, right, that's two potential Easter eggs we've got now. Let's call it a night. Is that recording? Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Right, that should be okay, I think. Right, if I just do that, hopefully you're about equidistant. <clears throat> We're going to do, I mean, by the time this goes out, it'll be three weeks. Do we want to say anything about that missing episode situation? Well, the missing episode must have been found by then. <laughs> well, it's been should, found. Should we pretend well, they've has? been found. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't That's think... a sort of philosophical question. Have they been found until they've been recovered? Schrodinger's missing yeah, episodes. Yeah, <coughs> In the moment, they're a film camp. Well... Yeah, well, the one thing you can say about it is that up until Phil Morris said about Web of Fear 3, mm. there were 97 missing episodes. And now there were, and from that point, there were 96 missing episodes, but 97 episodes missing from the BBC archives. Right. And now, I think it's fair to say there are 94 missing episodes, mm. or maybe even fewer, but certainly. 94 but 97 still missing from there do you think these collectors want to will be watching no the film but is that not the object 
I don't think so necessarily. So they'd hold these cans and they'd want to get it to the point where they could actually pass it through a a projector and actually see it. Well, I think they could, and I think I think there's a chance they probably have at some point. Right. But I don't think it's kind of thing they get out and watch. No, I wouldn't. They get it privately restored. I I imagine they do the restoration themselves. If you've got the kind of money to get hold of these things, Mm. and I'm not even sure. At the time, if the other the other two, the two that he was, or the two or more, the one or two, as he said, that he was talking about, at the time, they probably were found, or whatever, moved into collector's hands. They were probably still in decent condition. Right. And so probably have only needed looking after. Okay. And while they might have passed from one hand to another, they'll only have passed between people who would have been looking after them yeah so the ones we're talking about that aren't web 3 probably are still in pretty good condition right yeah and these people will be looking after them Mm. so because i mean you don't if you're collecting stuff like if they've passed hands at all they'll have passed hands for fairly big sums of money i'm not talking hundreds of thousands but might be five figure sums, or probably four figure sums, depending on when it would have happened. Yeah, if they can afford to buy it and afford to not sell it on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Then, then they'll have. And yeah. they won't be the only things they've got. It's not like somebody sitting at home with just a copy of the Tenth Planet Four <laughs> or whatever. These people, <laughs> are, if they're collectors, they've got big collections. So they've got mm. quite a d- big amount of disposable income that they're investing in this. Wow. There'll be there'll be a room in their house or whatever, attic, basement, garage, whatever, that's fitted out with temperature controls and all sorts to look after this stuff. I know, it sounds crazy. No, no, it sounds crazy. I'm just thinking one day there might be a windfall of these incredible non-Doctor things as well. Movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. If If you've got... If somebody's got a missing episode of Doctor Who, they've probably got other missing television other missing movies as well because mm-hmm. it's highly unlikely that the only thing they'd have would be a missing episode of Doctor Who, right? Mm-hmm. So who knows, Hitchcock's or whatever. It's just a white room with a single reel of film in the middle of it. Hmm. Yeah, no, precisely. That's crazy. But then but then the logic from their perspective is they've got a missing episode of Doctor Who probably from a story that's that wouldn't be completed with that episode. I mean, it might be that one's the Tenth Planet Four. I say that because of the Blue Peter thing, right? But I mean, it <coughs> could just as easily be an episode of something like Fury from the Deep or whatever. Mm. If they've got a single episode of something like Fury from the Deep, their logic is, well, if presuming they're not a Doctor Who fan, mm. because they're not, presumably they haven't picked it up because they're a Doctor Who fan, no. but just because they collect interesting film items. Yeah. So their logic is there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of Doctor Who that are available on DVD and what have you. This episode doesn't complete a missing story. It's not an important historically episode or whatever. Yeah. So they've paid presumably good money for it. What reason have they got to give it back? Because, I mean, as far as they can see, if they've been following anything, they've seen the kind of abuse that Ian Levine and Phil Morris and Paul Venezes get. Mm. They think, 
well, if I give it back, what am I going to get but abuse for it? And I'm certainly not going to get the money I paid for it, so why should I bother? And the only persuasion you can really try is, well, it's our cultural history. Mm. And that's where the, yeah, but you've got hundreds of hours of cultural history to enjoy. Does it really make any difference whether you've got this one extra episode or not? Mm. In other words, as far as they can see, that single episode means more to them than it would handed back. Because if it was handed back, it would be, yeah, sure, there'd be a big announcement and whatever, and people would be happy for a couple of months or something. Mm. But then people would just start taking that episode for granted, do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's not really... Unless somebody could come up with 25 grand or something to give them, and who can come up with that? Phil Morris, Paul Venezes can't come up with that kind of money to give them, I shouldn't have thought. Mm. And the BBC certainly wouldn't be able able to pay that kind of money for single installments of TV series so there's no financial imperative to give it back there's no logical imperative to give it back the only thing you can say is well you know this does mean a lot to a lot of people but then they look at that lot of people and they see the kind of abuse they give to these other people and there's just not really any incentive at all is there but then the other side of it psychologically is if they're not a Doctor Who fan and they're a collector, then it's actually the physical object that they're collecting, the yes. physical object. Yeah, yeah. So there's there shouldn't be a disincentive for them to loan that physical object to somebody to take a recording of it. Because so, the actual thing well, yeah. on the physical object isn't the thing they're collecting. It's I know, the yeah, but it's, that's the value, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's part yeah. of the reason for collecting it, is yeah. its value, isn't it? Yeah. Hence, you know, all those Hitchcocks yeah. or whatever they might also have. Yeah. And anything else, I don't know, things like Out of the Unknown or whatever. Yeah. You know, if they've got a collection of physical objects that are absolutely unique to that basement or attic or garage or whatever, that's where those unique items are going to stay, isn't it? Yeah. And then then it's down to people like Phil and Paul Mm. to try and persuade them otherwise. But that's that's not really a conversation I'd like to try and have. No. Because I've got to be honest with you, you look at the way Phil and Paul have been treated for the last few years, mm. and Ian as well as it goes, and you just think, oh, God, mate, I'm on your side. Mm. Do you know what I mean? As much as I'd like to see the episode, I look at the collectors and think it's, they've got the right ideas. It so sometimes. easily becomes an emotional thing, doesn't it? As opposed to, that's the funny two, the flip side of it is it's emotional and it's business. And there are people who think that it's all about finance. It's all about, you know, if you give them enough money, they'd hand it over. But it isn't just that. They have attachment no. to it. If, if, if he came up with the right <clears throat> figure, undoubtedly they would. Yeah. Because, I mean, everybody can persuaded, be persuaded by a certain figure. But nobody's going to be able to come up with a figure. <coughs> that <they're... coughs> yeah. But, yeah, but you can't do that because that's not how it works, is it? Is it not? Well, no, because <laughs> you can't crowdfund it yes. without saying what it is. Right. Or who's getting the money. And it's, yeah, and it's very difficult to crowdfund it without also saying where that money's going. So it'd be a complicated well, a complicated thing. Of yeah, but as soon saying. as, let's say, John Smith yes. has got Fury from the Deep Four, yeah. as soon as a crowdfunding campaign starts up that says John Smith's got Fury from the Deep Four, yeah. he's thinking, well, hang on a minute, somebody's going to break into my basement yeah. or attic and I'll be missing everything. And if they don't, there'll be stones through the windows or people hanging around outside the house... There'll be emails with death threats. So you, so it would have to be a crowdfunded with an intermediary <clears throat> who has that. So presumably Paul Vanessa has 
has the has the knowledge of who has the yeah, but let's say the crowdfunding is for fifty grand. Yes. And let's say you know here are two scenarios for you. Let's say you crowdfund for fifty grand yeah. and you only make forty. Yeah. But you've said it's Fury from the Deep Four. Yes. And you only get to forty. Yeah. So everybody gets their money refunded. Yes. And then fandom knows it's Fury from the Deep Four. It it is much worse knowing what the episode is and that it's there and that you failed on the crowdfunding than just letting Phil and Paul get on with the job of yeah, trying to yeah. get it back. No, 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 yeah. And the other scenario is, let's say they crowdfund for 50 grand for Fury from the Deep Four, yeah. and then somebody else turns up and says, well, okay, crowdfund me 500 grand, and I'll let you have 10th Planet 4 and Power of the Daleks 1. Yes. Well, you ain't going to get 500 grand for, even if it's 10th Planet 4 and Power of the Daleks 1. Yeah. So what you've done by crowdfunding, and this is the reason why they don't do it, because mm. if you crowdfunded for one yes. and anybody else turned up, they'd be able to name their price. Mm. And that would be a situation. Because if if Paul and Phil are in the act of trying to persuade these people, then there's yes. always a possibility eventually you'll get to the point where they say yes. But if you crowdfund the first one and somebody yes. else pops up yeah. and prices it completely out of reach, then there's no way to persuade that person to hand it over for less than they've asked for. So by getting one episode through crowdfunding, any other episode that you might have got disappears but forever. But any, any sort of nego- any kind of negotiation, if any money is handed over to recover an episode, then that amount will end up getting out there because presumably these connect these collectors operating network mm. of their own. So yeah, there somebody... has to be a philanthropic ep- yeah. element to it, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? Which probably... Which Probably won't happen because you do. You have to be an, an anonymous philanthropic effort mm. because this collector hands over the episode. They don't want. They won't want their name out there. No, exactly. if they do, because it would be you know. Because as you say, they get it in the neck from fans. Yeah. So they'd have to do it anonymously yeah. and for free. Yep. Yeah. Which do you know, Phil Morris was intending to hand over Enemy of the World and Web of Fear anonymously. Right. Because he didn't want this no, crap. Yeah. And, but his name got out. And otherwise, we wouldn't have known that it was him who'd done it. Yeah. We, we were supposed to be told the story that they'd been found. Uh, they weren't even going to say in Nigeria or whatever. Mm. I believe that possibly there was going to be some cover story like that attic story for right. the two 2011 recoveries right. and, and somebody the person who's found them wants to remain anonymous mm. and then it would have come out later that it was part of Phil Morris's thing right but they were going to go out under a cover because he story. was still working because he was yeah. still working and because he didn't want the bother yes. yeah yeah mm. and because as soon as his name goes out in public mm. that compromises any negotiations he's got going on elsewhere mm. But of course, once his name's out in public, people have been saying since, oh, but he's on television all the time and he's always going to conventions and stuff like that. He's been on television twice and he's been to two conventions and it's now five years. Do you know what? That's yeah. not a cr- incredible amount of popularity seeking. But the point is, as soon as his name was out, why wouldn't he go on TV? Because the damage was done. Mm. So, you know, you might as well do a convention. Mm. Yeah, it's... The only solution is just sit back, let the guys who do this kind of stuff, not for a living, but, you know, professionally, mm. do what they do and 
just cross your fingers and hope for the best, but just don't try and get involved. Wait for the collectors to die, and then it becomes <coughs> part of a probate. Just well, <laughs> yeah, in theory, well, that could get. Yeah, in theory, that could, you know, things could disappear things. forever, whatever. Yeah. Mm. But but you've got to wait till they're at a point of their life where the philanthropy mm. overrules the collector instinct. Mm. And you've got to have somebody there who can gently keep nudging them or, until that happens. Or Venezes is presumably recovering things left, right and centre. It could be a swap then. <clears throat> it could be an exchange of rare material for rare well, material. One of the, yeah, mm. one of the rumours... Well, one of the rumours that was going around about Phil, and I have no idea whether there's any truth in this whatsoever... Was that the reason why he's not talking, the reason why he won't reveal anything, including non-Doctor Who stuff, is because that's precisely what he's doing. Yeah. He's going round and doing swapping rare material for rare material. Mm. I suppose the one side of that is that presumably he's making copies of all these rare things himself before he swaps them, because Mm. otherwise, you know, you'd be losing as much stuff as you're gaining, right? Yeah. But... The other side of that is, if he is making copies of this stuff as he's going around swapping things, A, you can't talk about it in public, because obviously it would get out, and B, you can't reveal that you're making copies of this stuff until you're absolutely certain that all your swaps are done. Yes. Otherwise, it all comes toppling down, doesn't it? And also, it's a very, very fuzzy area of kind of cultural value that Doctor Who means a great deal, but to... A relatively small proportion of the public. Whereas Morgan and Wise means, Mm. for me, very very little, and possibly for Phil Morris very little, but it means much more to the wider public. So Morgan and Wise would be greater cultural value. If you found a Morgan and Wise, you could see that turning up on BBC One on Christmas Day. Wouldn't Mm. it? Well, they did find a Morgan and Wise, except there isn't that, that DVD release potential, so there's a greater... Oh, it's very complicated. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, it's it's individuals deciding on the cultural value of well, archive television. Did you see on the news this week, Potentially. case in point, the um, two Ronnie script that turn mm. up. Yes, yeah. The Four Candles one. Yeah. £28,000, I think it sold for. Mm. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. Hand, handwritten, turned up yeah. in somebody's bin, didn't it? Wow. And Yeah. Um, yeah, See, but that's it. But that's something slight. That's that's like a an extended autograph. That's something physically connected, and it's to, unique to a yeah, comedian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas these these films, there's the artifact of the films themselves, and there's what's on the films, mm. and mm-hmm. they kind of merged into one another. And then there's the history of the film. So mm. the Doctor Who canisters are more important because they've had this journey abroad and back, or to Blue Peter and out and. Mm. And they've been lost. So actually, the story of the lost missing episodes makes the missing episodes more valuable. Mm. And that's why they're more valuable than a lot of other programs that are missing. Yeah. Despite the fact that so much of Doctor Who does exist, and some of these other pro- programs are completely wiped out. Yeah. You've just got to hope that some very very dull program of the sixties really appeals to some of these <laughs> connectors. <laughs> yeah, it's lost. yeah. They know the value of Doctor Who, though. Yeah. But, but going back to what you said about Phil, where he, he works not just with British programming, but the, all the other countries that he's visiting to mm. 
to get hold of the programs for them. So that that's where the swapping can come into place. Mm. Is if you've got you know some foreign TV station that's got some Doctor yes. Who or whatever. Yeah, and he so he then goes out to try and find something that's been important to them. Then yes. that's what becomes possible. Yeah. Well, that's what he does. Mm. He goes in. The swap is he goes in and cleans up their archives, and they give him the stuff mm. that's ours. That's that is the swap. So it's not so much that he's swapping something that he's found, but he's swapping the work that he's doing. Okay. Because as I, as I would imagine it, he's probably doing it either for free or not for very Are much. Any missing money. episodes of Skippy or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Who knows? It's a, it's a, it's a very tangled sort of mm. situation. And then, then, as always in these situations best thing to do is just let the people who know what they're doing get on with it yeah let's shut up yeah and just well I mean, my my anxiety is always the thought of these things rotting it's not that i mean i'd like to see them but it's not that i haven't seen them i'm quite happy not to see planet episode four because i've got it a, a slight idea that it's absolutely rubbish <laughs> and that i'd probably guess that i think oh it's great to have this on my shelf but actually i'd sort of not watch it a bit like Bits of Web of Fear, I liked it, but you know, yeah, it's, it's not, not dragging out every it's couple of weeks. It's only the Holy Grail of Doctor Who when it's not there. When yeah, it's yeah, back, yeah. It stops being the Holy Grail of Doctor Who. And that's what I said about, you know, that's what I meant when I said the logic of it is yeah. they hand it back and mm. everybody's going, oh, you must hand it back until it's handed back. Yeah. And then they just take it for granted. So the Web of Fear I like having on my shelf because mm. it's a, a monument to its its restoration and it's the fact that I know it exists. Mm. Not to the fact that I can now see it whenever I want to. I mean, there mm. are some people who sit down and watch these things every six months, but you know, you're talking very few people. Yeah. You know, it, it is good to have them and good to have the choice of being able to watch them. Mm. But let's face it, with so many Doctor Who stories on your shelves, yeah. you know, you, you're far more, well, you know, just. Maths dictates you're far more likely to pull something said, else. Proportionately, the though, the fact that they were Trout episodes means it makes them that bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. But it's but it's the fact they exist. So yes. if I knew that or suspected that Trout and more Trout and episodes existed safely, mm. then that takes the edge off my kind of depression about there being fewer <laughs> episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. I think. Do you get depressed about it? Well, at times, too. Yeah. yeah, well, I used to... You were in a black T-shirt. I used to have dreams when I was, like, a teenager that mm. I found Evil of the Daleks somewhere. Or I was watching a... I was putting a video. I got the video in my hands. Mm. I used to dream that I could see that I had the video of Evil of the Daleks. So it obviously must have meant something to me back then. I don't know why. It's probably after reading the novelization or something or listening to the, the, the audio book or something. Mm. Now that we know Celestial Toymaker, that was that was the one that always stuck in my head that I wow. wanted to see. You oh. know. Mm. Anyway, me, it was the smugglers. <laughs> <laughs> should we? Should we uh, actually Start do a podcast? podcast? Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know whether I'll um, actually be able to stick that on. Maybe I'll stick that on afterwards. Mm. As soon as I was recording. Okay, let's wait for this plane to do its stuff. <laughs>